Morning, gentlemen. Good to see your lovely faces today. You know, uh, m- most men, uh, when they get to the end of, the vlo- of life, they'd like to think that they made a difference to somebody, that they changed their surroundings a little bit. I think just by nature, we're kind of built that way. And then uh, if you come to Christ, in some ways those interests and ambitions are heightened. Uh, we really would like to make a difference. You know, as they say, you ought to live your life. Uh, as Stephen Covey says, imagining that there'll be four people giving a eulogy at your funeral. Somebody there to talk, uh, talk from your family, what would they say? Somebody that talks from the workplace, what would they say? Uh, and someone who talks from the community, what would they say? Somebody who talks from your church, what would they say? And get that in your mind. What, what kind of eulogy do you want to, do you want to leave, if you will, and live your life in, in light of the, the end? Get the end in view and go for it. And uh, in Acts 17, we have an, a really interesting, if not arresting, description of the disciples given as men who turn the world upside down. Now, interestingly, when this phrase is given, it's given in a pejorative manner. It's not given as a compliment. And the actual phrase, as you probably saw in Stott, if you read his commentary before this morning on this text, is a description of someone who's committing treason, that they turn the world upside down, they turn the world order upside down, they turn the, the regime upside down. And so it, it, it's meant as a very negative thing, and yet the way we see it, that it's, it can be a positive thing. We really do want to turn the world upside down, and the reason we want to turn it upside down is that it's upside down now. <laughs> so if we can get the bottom side up and the top side down, maybe we will get it in the right order. And uh, everybody, from every religious perspective around the world, has something in common, and that is something's wrong. Everybody agrees something's wrong. And so if you, it, it, the, the deeper your analysis goes, the more radical your solution is going to be. And basically, Christians do believe things need to be turned inside out and upside down to get them right side up. <laughs> and so in Acts 17, we're going to see how that's done, why the disciples were known for this, both positively and negatively, and why we must be the men who are known for this too. We've got to be people who are doing the most radical diagnosis of our own selves to begin with, of our own environment, our own city, our own churches, our own businesses, and coming up with the most radical solutions, things that are really going to change things upside down. Let's look at Acts 17, and you'll remember that Paul has been in Philippi, and he got uh, badly beaten by the authorities, thrown into prison. God sent an earthquake and spared the jailer. He led the jailer to Christ. And, uh, of course, it's always charmed me to think of the Philippians getting their letter later on, around 60, 61 A.D., from Paul when he was in prison. And I'm thinking about that Philippian jailer getting that letter. And all that he was thinking about Paul being in prison. He was probably saying, won't be long till those prison guards are converted. Uh, but the 
the jailer was converted. His family was, was brought into Christ, baptized. Lydia, the business lady, she was led to Christ. The servant girl who had a demon in her, uh, we don't know explicitly that she was led to Christ, but she was delivered from her demon. Amazing things happened. And, of course, all the authorities want is to get Paul out of town as quickly as possible because he is turning the world upside down. He's causing problems. And Christians do cause problems. We'll see why in a few moments. But notice that Paul then goes from Philippi, which was perhaps the most populous city in Macedonia. Now to the, uh, he's eventually going to make his way to the capital. Uh, and you'll notice this is a strategy of the Apostle Paul. If you were here this past weekend as second, you heard Dr. Tim Keller talk about the Pauline strategy, going from capital to capital. This is the reason that he's in Ephesus and Athens, Corinth and Rome and in uh, Philippi and Thessalonica. He's going to the major cities because to evangelize an unreached area, you go first to the urban areas where new thoughts are uh, considered more easily than in the rural areas. The rural areas tend to be more provincial, more conservative. They're not open to new thoughts. So you go to the urban area, the populous area. You also go there because that's where so many of the cultural leaders are and where the resources are. And if you plant a church in the urban area, that urban area then will take a concern for its own region. And so when you get to Romans 15, as some of you who are here Sunday night uh, heard, you have Paul saying that he's gone all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And this would be, you know, in the late 50s he's saying this, 57 A.D., when he says it to the Romans. He says, I've been all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is where Albania is now. So he's gone all the way across Turkey, all the way across Greece, into Albania, and he says, there are no more regions for me to, to reach here. And you're saying, there are lost people everywhere, Paul. Well, what he means is he's planted churches in all the major urban areas. So now he says, I'm going on to Spain. So you can see the, the Christian strategy should be the same today. We've got many unreached regions still. We need to get to the major areas, plant churches, and go on to the next major area and plant churches, and then let the nationals lead their people to Christ in those regions. So Paul is kicked out of Philippi. Now let's see what he does. He's kicked out, but he's planted a church. He left some insurrectionists behind him. So he left, but Jesus didn't leave. Jesus is still there in Philippi ministering, and we know that turns out to be a fabulous missionary sending and missionary supporting church. So Paul has done a mighty work by the hand of God, but he's kicked out. So pick up with chapter 17 now, and um, we'll see where he goes and what he does. And by the way, you can look on the previous page, 2118, and look at the map. And you can see Philippi up there in, in uh, northeast Macedonia. And notice now where Thessalonica is in Berea. So he's going basically southwest toward the inland from there. Okay, let's pick up with chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous 
and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Okay, let's first of all look at these first three verses and learn that we turn the world upside down by presenting the gospel. We turn the world upside down by presenting the gospel. I'm serious. The Bible's serious. The world gets turned inside out and right side up through the presentation of the gospel. That's the reason that our main task here and everywhere is to present the gospel in a way that leads to clear understanding of what the facts of the gospel are, leads to a clear understanding of what the response needs to be, leads to a clear understanding of what the implications of the gospel are, and leads to a clear understanding of the deliverance from guilt and shame that we live in all the days of our lives. We need to keep hearing the gospel because even though you may be in Christ and your life has turned right side up, you start tilting (laughs) and you, you almost stay tilted and the gospel keeps getting you right side up. It's the gospel that does it. It's the story of Jesus Christ. It's not just the historical events of what happened to him, but it's also the theological interpretation of what that means for us. And so hearing that over and over again and applying it in your lives will enable you to be the messenger of the gospel, both by word and deed, and to be the transforming agent wherever you're serving. So the, the gospel is what turns us right side up. Now, look at the first two verses and we'll see where Paul starts. Well, he starts where he always starts, with God's people. We start with God's people. He goes into the synagogue. Now, there was not a synagogue in Philippi. You remember that. But since there wasn't a synagogue, that just meant there, wasn't, there weren't ten men who were, who were Jewish. So what does he do? He goes to the river where he's going to find less than ten men and find some women. He starts with God's people. So, gentlemen, when you believe the gospel, you start with yourself. 
You start with your family. Look what the jailer did. The first instinct was to enable his family to enjoy the benefits of what he was enjoying. So you have an obligation to your family. You fathers, grandfathers, uncles, brothers, you have an obligation to your family to be sure to give them every opportunity to know the gospel, to experience it. Then what do you do? You go to your church. Listen, I'm telling you what, every single one of your churches have non-believers who are in them. And I'm not talking about just the visitors. I'm talking about the members. You have people who've been going to your church, some of them for years, and don't know and believe the gospel. They're motivated by other religious instincts. There are plenty of religious instincts that are common to humanity that cause us to get involved with all kinds of religions. And some of our friends, they're in church because the nearest religion happens to be the one you believe in. So they just go and enjoy the religious ceremonies, the music, the flowers, the friendships, and often they'll never hear the gospel. And in some of your churches, actually, it is a rare thing to hear the gospel. And this is the greatest tragedy in all the churches that we who have, have our existence because of the gospel have lost our ability to communicate it to our own people. Many, many times I'll be talking to someone in their 20s who has grown up in some of the churches in Memphis. They never remember. Maybe they heard it but they never remember hearing the gospel. The gospel turns things upside down. Be sure your Sunday school class knows what the gospel is. Be sure your Sunday school class or your small group talks about the gospel. Be sure that you regularly apply the gospel everywhere that you are. Paul always starts with God's people in the synagogue. He has an obligation to start there. It is the church that, first of all, must be turned right side up. If the church doesn't hear the gospel... It's one generation away from apostasy. And the reason that churches come up with all kinds of strange ethical teachings that look like they come from another place, and they do. They're not Christian at all. The reason is, if you'll check their history, you'll find that about three pastors ago was the last time they heard the gospel. And now they're promoting all kinds of ethical wickedness. doesn't take long. One generation always from apostasy. Be sure you start with the church. Be sure you're always in the church with the gospel and that our children and ourselves are hearing it and applying it regularly. Notice secondly, though, when he goes to the synagogue, look what he does. He addresses people's minds. We address people's minds. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Notice, first of all, he addresses their minds with reasoning. This is especially crucial in our day. We are made up of several components. I suppose you could categorize them in different ways. You know, when Paul talks about, or I'm sorry, when Moses talks about loving God, he talks about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Philosophically, we might, or anthropologically, we might take human beings and say, you know, they consist of, of matter and immaterial. They consist of soul and body. Or some psychologists would say, you know, we're mind and we're affections, and we're will. So you have someone's thinking, they're feeling, and they're willing or they're doing. And that's, that's a common category you'll even find in Christian ethics. We must think. Our feelings follow our thinking. And now impassioned thinking motivates our doing. So it's think, feel, do. Think, feel, do. 
That's a typical order for the Christian lifestyle. You notice that thinking's at the beginning. Now, the only way we can think properly is if our hearts have been changed. So I'm going to add a, a fourth element there. The heart is headquarters. It's your disposition. And your entire disposition must change in order for you to be able to think clearly. So conversion converts your heart, headquarters, your dispositions. Now, I want to know the truth, so teach me. I want to have affections in the right way, so lead me. I want to do the right things, so command me. It's all coming out of a converted disposition. So your heart gets changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you think clearly. You feel after the things of God. You, put, you get your affections oriented toward the truth and toward the living God. And then you do the things that He commands because your heart and your affections and your mind are all engaged. This is the total Christian outlook on life. Now let's look at, for example, some, let's look at Paul's description in Romans. Turn over a few pages in your Bible to page 2158. And here... Paul, in chapter 1, verse 18, begins to describe the, pro- the problem with human- fallen humanity, the human condition. And he goes all the way from 118 all the way through 320 to describe the human condition, the fallen condition of humankind. Now look what he says right here at the beginning. He says, for the wrath of God, this is Romans 118, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, look what we do, suppress the truth. So Paul's description, and stay there because there's more coming in in that chapter. Paul says, here's the problem. You have a heart that is wicked, and it has the truth presented to it. And there's a certain level in that heart that knows that that truth is true. But the wicked heart actively suppresses the truth. So what you have to realize is, Outside of Christ, you have a heart that is biased. It's biased against the truth that would lead to the lordship of God. You don't want a God in your life. You don't want creation to be true. So you have an alternative explanation for the existence of things because you hate the conclusion to which creation leads you. You know this in your mind. You know that if you start thinking about something being created out of nothing, something being created by God who is eternal, matter being temporal and God being eternal, you know that if you get trapped in that corner, there are going to be some moral consequences and you're going to have to face judgment. So in order to avoid that, you actively suppress the truth even from the scientific world that comes to you. Even these gaping gaps between species... You have some alternative explanation like chance, which doesn't even exist. So you choose something that doesn't exist over the existence of God who does exist because you can't stand the consequences of thinking that way. So actually the way you think is is not according to your IQ. It's really according to your view of beauty and truth and goodness. it, It really is a reflection of what you think about God. God's your starting point, and morality is your starting point. And so your wicked heart suppresses the truth. Let's keep reading. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse, he says. You see, Paul's continuing that argument. It's plain. You don't have a world that operates like our world does. And you have the beauty of nature the way it is. You cannot possibly explain that through accidents. He says that's foolishness. But the mind prefers foolishness if it gets me away from the living God. So you see how important the mind is and the heart. Now look at verse 21. For although they knew God, isn't that interesting way to put it? He's saying there's a certain knowledge of God in man's conscience. So there is a way in which they knew God because men have it in their conscience and they have his fingerprints in creation. So your, your conscience was made by him and you've got his fingerprints. There's a sense in which you know better. He's saying, for although they knew God, look at verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see the connection again. Futility in their thinking. Thinking that gets you nowhere. It's absolutely foolish. Why? Your heart is darkened. Now you get the same analysis in Ephesians chapter 4 from the apostle. And you get snippets of it elsewhere. This is the Pauline anthropology of fallen humankind. So what you, you can see is that thinking is the beginning of the process that comes out of our hearts. Our disposition will determine how our thinking goes, but our thinking is very important. So Paul, back now to Acts 17, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This does not mean that Paul was a rationalist. It doesn't mean that Paul was unaware of affections. Gentlemen, how, you know, how could anybody read the Pauline epistles and think that Paul was a rationalist? This man had deep affections, and they were engaged in his life and his work. He cared immensely. He wept. He shouted for joy. He, he would be gripped in the pains of agony thinking about someone else who was suffering. The man had deep emotions and deep affections. But notice the way in which we discern God and discern reality is not primary through your affections. Your affections are taught by your mind. Your affections are following your thinking. And the difficulty since the, the latter part of the 18th century in particular, when uh, our transcendentalist forefathers decided that you could feel your way to God, that you could get to God aesthetically through an experience rather than thinking thoughts after God, is that we really have turned things upside down. And we've, we've asked ourselves this question, not what do I think is true. Here's the question we ask ourselves now. How do I feel about this? I was sitting one time with a young man who was thinking about divorcing his wife. And I was just simply asking him some questions. And that would, of course, they were based upon leading him to some principles for how to think about his commitments. And in the midst of it, it was kind of like he called a time out. He says, you know what, I just need some time to get off and, and consider how I feel about this. I want to grab him by the back of the neck and say, who gives a rip how you feel? <laughs> There's something more important. It's called truth. It's called reality. Yeah, yeah you got it. I time that. There's, it's actually not a person. It's a little thing I hit with my foot. And I've got another one over here that says amen whenever I want it. Yes, sir. 
But you notice that we have been trained to think. This is the irony. We've been trained to think that the leading component of your leadership in your life is how you feel about something. It's very dangerous. It is a perversion. Transcendentalism is a perversion. Romanticism is a perversion. Now, rationalism is also a perversion. Rationalism says I can get to God with my mind and I can just simply think and know God. And the Bible teaches us think, feel, do. That's how you know God. That's how you walk with Him. But you start with thinking. Here's the way the Puritans did it. The Puritans said the mind is the window to the soul. So what you want is your whole soul. That would be your heart to be engaged. The mind's the window. And if there's no light coming in, there's darkness, then you're going to be making bad decisions. You're going to be thinking evil thoughts. You're not going to be walking with Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul reasoned with them. He addressed their minds. These are Jewish people who had great traditions, who had a synagogue with certain rituals, These were Jewish people who had deep sentiments about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their great heritage. Paul didn't make an emotional appeal to them. He made an intellectual appeal to them. And I want to suggest that we need to get back to an intellectual appeal. Now, there's some books that can be helpful. Sometimes you'll ask me, what book should I be sharing with my friends? Well, let me first of all just speak about a little book by John R. W. Stott, the late Dr. Stott, Years ago, wrote wrote a book called The Christian Mind. It's just a little skinny thing. And he quotes a book by Harry Blamires, who wrote one earlier than he did on The Christian Mind. And Stott is really making the point that opinions are very powerful and they do turn the world upside down. And in order to get true opinions that really change the world, turn it upside down, you have to have converted hearts. So we've got to speak to the heart Be sure our hearts are right. But when these opinions come out, I mean, look, let me just give you a couple of ideas of how powerful opinions are. Let me just give you three words. Separate but equal. That has tremendous power. That can change an entire nation. Separate but equal. Or you can say, love your neighbor as yourself. That has tremendous power. Now, which of those will a nation choose? Well, they're going to have to be reasoned with. And you'll notice in Dr. King's ministry, there was powerful intellectual content. Now, of course, he had soaring oratory. And he appealed to the aesthetics of the human mind. And he appealed to the emotions. emotions. Don't think for a minute that he he didn't have a, a, a bear trap grip on truth that he presented. You just check his letter from the Birmingham jail and tell me that that's not an intellectual uh, address to God's people, speaking primarily to pastors. So he goes to the church first and he reasons with them. And I'm telling you in our churches today, we need men who will see what the problems are in the churches and in human lives and they will reason with the people under their care. We are to be people who do this. So take the mind seriously. Now, um, speaking of Dr. Dr. Keller, you can look at his book, Reason for God. Reason for God. 
And in his presentation of theism, Christian theism, he starts with the mind. Let's take the popular arguments that are out there and let's reason with them. And what you're doing when you're reasoning, you're, first of all, you're using good anthropology. You're saying to your neighbor, I know how you're built. You have a heart, your disposition that determines the way you think and the way you feel and then what you do. So I'm going to address the, the prints of, of the various agents in your being. I'm going to talk to your mind. You're, you're respecting them as a human being, that they have a mind. And so you address them at that level. And when you address them at that level, the other issues will come out. Their feelings, their disposition, the things they do, it'll all come out. But you're addressing the mind, and we must learn to get better and better at this. So you can read Stott's book. You can, I'm, I'm sorry, Keller's book. You can read John Stott's book, Basic Christianity. It's a presentation of the Christian faith from an intellectual point of view. And it's not, you don't have to be a graduate student to understand it. But it addresses men's minds, basic Christianity. You can also look at his Christian basics, which is on a little lower shelf and a little bit more holistic. Or what about Lee Strobel's books uh, on faith and on Christ and on the resurrection and so on? Look at Strobel's things. Get your mind in gear with the Christian faith because you need to be able to talk to people about it. You say, well, I'm just not a very good apologist. I don't feel like I know the Christian faith very well. Well, let me tell you something. Those of you who have children at home, and that's several of you, you are the chief apologist in your home. And, uh, you know, I just know from my experience with five children, four children-in-law, now four grandchildren, that I can't prepare for the questions they're going to ask me. And I've been peppered with questions for 36 years. You know, I'll never forget one of the earlier ones with my oldest son four or five years old, and he says to me, Dad, God is good, right? Right. There's a lot of evil in the world, Dad, right? Right. You know where he's going. Four or five years old, asking me the most profound philosophical question you can be asked, the most, one of the most difficult ones. Well, maybe I didn't give him a very good answer, but the next kid that asked me that, I was waiting for him. <laughs> so you learn as you go. What your children need to see is that you take your mind seriously, you take their mind seriously, and you take the intellectual component of your faith very seriously because it has great power to change things in your life, their life, and the lives around us. So you get better and better as you go. And the way that your children will learn and grow is when at the dinner table, and I hope you have one, you actually sit down and talk about things ethical things, theological things, case studies, things in their lives, and you reason through them. And if you're the head of family, one of the best ways to reason through them is to learn to ask questions. My dad used to drive me crazy. Son, what do you think about that? I wouldn't have asked if I didn't want to know what you think about it, I said. But he said, no, I want to know what you think. He makes me think. And then when he knows I'm a little bit off, he just asked me a follow-up question. Could I ask you why you said this in your answer? And then he, re- he examines my presuppositions and what I'm thinking. This is the Socratic method. It needs to be used at every dinner table. But you're leading somewhere. You're reasoning with them about the Christian faith. And that's what everything's about. It's about Christ. Everything in your life is about Christ. And when someone comes to the head of your family, and you're the head of it, they ought to know that's the way your mind thinks. 
And you can see it here with the Apostle Paul. He's going to reason with some people who have very strong opinions, who are not easy to convince normally, but he's going to go and reason with them faithfully because that's what the gospel demands. Secondly, he explains to them. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining. He's got to explain the Christian faith. You know, ten times in Acts you find Paul reasoning. Paul does it all the time, especially in 17, 18, 19, 20 in these chapters. We'll find Paul reasoning throughout Europe. And now he explains things. You know, uh, uh, Tim Keller, when he was here, told me that uh, about his trip to, to Oxford just about three weeks ago and just had a wonderful time at university. And uh, he's, he, would, uh, he got 25 minutes to present. And there were probably five or 600 Oxford students there. He got 25 minutes to present. And then there would be a three-minute testimony during which time everyone would text their questions. And Tim's son was sitting there rapidly going through the questions to get the ones that would be most piercing. And then they'd put the questions up on the overhead and Tim would answer for the next 30 minutes or so. Tim said, you know, very few people who are sharing the Christian faith understand what the number one question is among young people today. He said, without a doubt, overwhelmingly, the number one question was about sex. He said it's about, you know, the Christian view of homosexuality, the Christian view of premarital or extramarital sex, the Christian view of marriage. It's rampant. It's a great opportunity. Uh, I, I found this to be true just last fall. I, I was working with a young man, uh, leading him to Christ or trying to, and leading him through various Scripture passages and books of the Bible. And he was reading. And finally he gets to the point where I asked him after about three or four of these meetings, you know, what do you think about the gospel? What do you think about Christ? He said, you know, I, th- I think I believe everything here. He said, I just got one more problem. I said, what's that? He said, this whole thing with with a Christian's view of gays. It just doesn't seem right to me. So we t- took the next 45 minutes to talk about the biblical view of, of gays and heterosexuals. And, and after explaining and showing the love of Christ and the truth of Christ for people regardless of their sexual orientation and his love for us in giving us guidelines by which we can live and enjoy life and enjoy each other in community, he was ready to commit himself to Christ. It's, it's out there. Well, look, if it's out there and you haven't thought it through, you couldn't explain both love and truth in our view of those who are involved in extramarital sexuality, whether gay or hetero. If you haven't thought about that, you're probably not going to be very helpful in leading young people to Christ because it's a major question in their minds. You say, well, that scares me to death. I don't know anything about it. Well, there are some books you can read to find out something about it. You can email me about this. But we need to be explaining all kinds of things. Whatever's on their mind, we need to explain it. And then notice also Paul was proving something. He was actually making proofs like a science classroom, you know, using syllogisms or whatever he needs to use to show that things are true. There is such a thing as truth. You know, and there are ways in which we can, we may not be able to comprehend truth, but we can apprehend truth and there are ways we can get at it. And he shows them how to do it and he proves. And what is he proving? Well, two major things in this case. First of all, Messiah's work. He has to prove this because the Jewish mentality would not have been 
that when the Messiah comes, he's going to die, especially cursed on a tree. Messiah, cursed. That's like talking about fried ice. It makes no sense. There's no category for that in the Jewish mind. Why was there no category? Here's why there was no category. The Jewish mind had distorted the Old Testament and still does. So you could have the actual Word of God and then you overlay on top of it a tradition that distorts the Word of God. And every church does this to some extent and some to a deathly extent. Overlay on top of the Scriptures a tradition that is contrary to the Scriptures themselves. That's what the Jews had done. So Paul had to do a lot of intellectual work. He had to say, look, I know you were taught this. I know you were taught that. I know that you took this interpretation out of Daniel 7 and you assumed it meant this. But let me show you some other texts that have to be considered, like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12. Let me show you some, some places in the Scriptures where Messiah clearly suffers unto death. Really? Yeah, just look at the text. So Paul here starts with common ground, which was the text. Now when you get to Acts, uh, when you get to Athens later on, Acts 17, he doesn't start with the scriptures because he's dealing with pagans. So he doesn't have the Torah in common with them. But now in the synagogue, they've got in common the Bible. Okay, let's go to the Bible and we'll reason from there. And Paul had spent, of course, 17 years in the wilderness preparing for encounters like this because he had to understand the Scriptures. And he spent years trying to understand the Bible himself so that in his senior years he could help somebody else. So he spent all that time in his early adulthood learning what the Old Testament actually means and building new categories in his mind because he had had Pharisaical categories. He had no category for a Jesus who died. There was no room for that in Pharisaism. So Paul had to disabuse himself of his old traditions and open his mind to new things. Now the problems that we deal with are not that people are committed to traditions usually, but it's that they don't want to be committed to anything. And they think that's having an open mind. Well, if you you read a book some years ago called The Closing of the American Mind by... Somebody help me. Bloom. Bloom. you would see that what we say is an open mind is actually a closed mind. Because guess what? Now in this day of having an open mind to everything, the mind is closed to anything. And G.K. Chesterton once said, the purpose of an open mind like an open mouth is to clamp down on something solid. So if you really have an open mind, you're looking for truth that you can clamp down on. The problem with the so-called open mind today is it doesn't want to clamp down on anything because it wants to retain its own place as God. And when you clamp down on truth, you become a servant and a creature. And if you don't clamp down on anything, you can be the Lord who decides that nothing else is true. The only thing that's true is your existence. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am, says Descartes. People don't realize Descartes actually meant that as an irony. But nonetheless, that's the way we think. Uh, The only thing I know for sure is that I am. I don't know anything else. Well, Paul was proving to them from the Scriptures. And that word proving means placing alongside. So he basically was showing the text here. 
all the texts in the Old Testament Scripture and then showing the life of Christ here and saying, look, this is that, and this is that, and this is that, which leads to the conclusion, He is that. That's what He was doing. Systematically. Working with people who are willing to think in the synagogue. He proves Messiah's work, and then look, He proves Messiah's person. He says, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Messiah. So this very Jesus in time and space who ascended into heaven just 20 years ago, it's this Jesus who is the Christ of the Old Testament because that Christ must die and must rise again. Psalm 16, Psalm 116. So he proves the crucifixion and the resurrection from the Old Testament for Jewish people. He's reasoning with them. And that's what must be done in our own day with whatever questions are around us. And it's our job to know what our children's questions are, what our grandchildren's questions are, and let's get good at answering them. Because let me tell you something, there are answers. No one can be argued into the kingdom. Because remember, the heart establishes the disposition. Only God can change a heart. But hearts change through the mind, oftentimes. The mind is the window to the soul. And I know from personal experience, I was personally converted because there were some people who loved me enough to present things to me and to reason with me over a period of time so that finally the light came on my heart and changed my heart. Okay, secondly, verses 4 through 9, and uh, we'll have to move along here. We turn the world upside down regardless of the response. Some believe because they're persuaded and they join. And some don't. Some believe and some don't. And you see this in verses 4 through 9. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. They persuaded and they joined. So people need to be convinced. Once again, this is not rationalism. They're convinced because their hearts are changed. They see that Jesus Christ is Lord. They see that they're sinners They need a Savior. And they embrace Him. And then the light comes on in their minds. They're persuaded because they're converted. And intellectual persuasion is a necessary part of conversion and a necessary part of discipleship is to be persuaded through reason. And then they join. They don't just say, oh, that was an interesting experience. You know, Paul, I agree with everything you said. See you later, pal. No, How do we join you? How do we become part of what you are? How do we join the church? Someone who says, you know, I believe all those things. I just don't want to deal with the church. Well, you're not a Christian. You may agree principally or intellectually with a few things, but if you don't join, you're not a disciple. Disciples are persuaded and they join. They join the apostles. So where the apostles' doctrine is being taught, that's where they join. That's what happens to some. But notice some don't. Well, why don't they? You say they have to be idiots. (laughs) Well, no. They're just normal. They're like us. And what happens when you don't have a category for a Lord in your life? You don't have a category for a Messiah who's born of a virgin, lives a perfect life with no sinful thoughts, never looked at a woman lustfully in his life, Who has a category for that? Nobody can understand that. And then he dies on a wooden tree to save me from the guilt of my personal sin. Go figure that. 
And then on the third day, he comes out of the grave through his grave clothes. Figure that. And then after 40 days, whoosh, goes up into heaven. It sounds like something from Walt Disney, doesn't it? I feel sorry for unbelievers. Who, who could expect people to believe this stuff? You know, it's, it's crazy. It's wild. It's, there's no category for this. Well, that's what causes people to go haywire. Look what they do. Those who don't believe oftentimes will be very jealous. They have jealous motives. The Jews were jealous. Jealous of what? A religious following. They were losing members. <laughs> they were losing synagogue members who were becoming church members. That'll make you jealous. So they're moved by jealousy. And then secondly, what happens? Well, they have riotous behavior. <laughs> Look what they do. They can't reason. They can't refute Paul's reasoning that's based on the Torah. It's actually what the Torah says. It's what the Old Testament says. So I can't beat that. But just because it's true doesn't mean I have to agree with it because I'm losing members over it, so I'll just get a crowd. So we're going to go now from reasoning to power. Gentlemen, please notice this. When you leave reasoning, you're into Nietzsche's playground. It's all about power. Might is right. So get the biggest crowd you can, equip the largest army you can, and just take over. That's the weaponry of a person who loses their minds. And thankfully, in this country, we have a tradition of the just war theory. We don't just go to war because we're jealous or angry or afraid. We go to war because something is true and right and good. And warfare is actually an act of love and devotion when it's done properly. So let us not get into mobs with mob scenes and just rally people up with a flag. But let's remember what the flag of any decent country is supposed to stand for. Truth and justice and loving your neighbors yourself. And this is the way thinking men who have been trained by the gospel of Christ live their lives. Men who are not trained by the gospel of Christ have a mob mentality. And you can see it on the streets of cities around the world and sometimes in our own. Mobs don't think. Riotous behavior. Get wicked men of the rabble and they form a mob. There you go. That's really thinking, boys. And then thirdly, they use slanderous words. They just tell lies. Paul undoubtedly spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we know what he meant. He is Lord of all the universe now. He's coming back to rule physically one day soon. Paul undoubtedly taught this. You'll find it in the pages of Acts. So what do these people do? They say, we heard him talk about someone else who's king instead of Caesar. Paul didn't teach that. Check his letter to the Romans where he says that we are the ones who submit to the civil magistrate. Why? Because we have King Jesus. These people take what Paul said, they take a truth, and they distort it. That's what angry, mindless people do when they oppose the gospel. They'll take something you say, and they distort it, so that it has the appearance of truth, but it's actually a wicked falsehood. It's a favorite technique. It's called slander. 
Fourthly, then they get from the government an outrageous judgment. A pragmatic judgment, I might say. We need to stop this foolishness because the Roman authorities are going to hear that you're all talking about a king and then they're going to blame us for not putting you to death for it. So y'all shut up, get that guy out of town and we'll make a deal with Jason. You put some money up and you'll get your money back when Paul leaves town. Oh, that's, that's fair. There's using your mind. We're losing ours. We're losing ours in our culture. We're losing in our universities. We're losing in our government. We're losing it in public discourse. When I listen to people on news now, in CNN and Fox News Network, all I see is slanderous, riotous, mob-gathering behavior. Neither one of those groups, MSNBC or Fox News, are speaking clearly, using canons of logic, and certainly not based upon the gospel. And if you're getting your political agenda from any one of those places, you're not thinking. You've lost your mind too. As one of my friends said, we ought to get Keith Oberman and, oh, what's his name, Bill O'Reilly, and just put them in a padded room in their, in their shorts and let them fight it out you know, until one of them comes out alive or something. You know, we, just be done with it. You're not getting reasoning, and that's no responsible place for a Christian man to develop a public view of anything. We're, we're men who are reasonable, and we keep our minds clear, and we listen carefully, and we reason from the Bible, and then we challenge everybody, especially your own political party. If you want to know who you should be challenging the most, it's the ones with whom you're associated. So take on your own people first with the gospel. Lovingly, of course, but challenge them instead of outrageous judgments that are pragmatic. I could go on here, and I, we don't have time. Let's, let's look at number, th- number three. We've got six minutes. Verses 10 through 15, we turn the world upside down through perseverance. We turn the world upside down through perseverance when our hearers cooperate. And that's true. When we're leading people to Christ, I'm telling you what, folks, we are turning the world upside down. Now, what did Paul do? The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into a house and hid themselves because they were afraid. No. When they arrived, they went right back into that Jewish synagogue. Gentlemen, please notice this. When you get beat up, the best thing to do is go get, let somebody else beat you up. Just keep it going. You don't have long in this life. Don't waste your time with pity parties or crawling over in a corner or hiding or just trying to stay out of the fight. Look, you're in the fight anyway. You may as well just stay in it and just go from one opportunity to the next opportunity. I'm not talking about being obstreperous or being uh, tactless or being unkind with people. I'm talking about with deeds of love and mercy, with kindness, you go from one relationship to the other, one encounter to another, and you don't stop until you're flat on your back and you can't move anymore. And then when you can't move anymore, as long as you have breath, you're praying for the battle until you go home. And that's the reason for being here. So no slowing down. You get kicked out of Philippi, what do you do? You go to Thessalonica. Get kicked out of Thessalonica, what do you do? You go to Berea. And you go right back to where you got in trouble in the first place, right back to the Jewish people, and you start reasoning with them again. And lo and behold, every once in a while, look what happens. People receive the word with all eagerness. They're eager to examine the Scriptures to see if these things were so. Oh, you say Psalm 22 applies to the Messiah. You know, I had never thought about that. This is incredible. Psalm 53 or Isaiah 53, I always wondered what that meant. 
whether it applied to the Israel nation as a whole or whether it applied to an individual person. And you're showing me here it applies to the servant of Isaiah. And now I can see it. This is amazing, they were saying. You see how Paul says they were noble. Their minds were truly open because they were looking for the truth. They weren't just simply trying to defend their existing lifestyle and traditions. They were actually looking for the truth. They were noble people. And so you go from one person to the next, you don't know who's going to be noble. You don't know whose mind is going to be open. You pray that He'll open minds. And then you go to all the minds. And you work with the ones who will. And look here. They received, they examined, they believed. You know, I told you about the one that I worked with over several weeks just last fall. But you know, this, this winter I had another guy. And I, I'd never met him before. And I just said, you know, at some point in our conversation, could I just tell you about the gospel that I love and believe, believe in? He said, sure. And I told him. And I said, have you ever heard this? He said, no. I said, what do you think of it? He said, he said I think it sounds true. I said, I'm thinking, Lord, is he pulling my leg? <laughs> I really thought the guy was pulling my leg. So I said, well, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't receive Jesus Christ as your Lord right here. He said, really? I said, and I'm thinking, can this be true? I said, and I said, yeah, it's, you can. You can do that. I said, would you, would you like to pray right now and ask Christ to come into your heart? He said, yeah, I really would. I said, really? Oh, I mean, well, here, just pray after me. And I just led him in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior so he, he might be a follower of the Lord. And then I, after he, he prayed, I said, you know, Jesus forgives us just like that when we turn to him in repentance and faith. And he'll just take you now and make you his disciple. And I asked him what church you know, was near him. I found a believing gospel-centered church for him to join. I'm just amazed. There, there are people like this out there. It's amazing. And you'll find some of them. Paul did right here uh, in, this, in this wonderful city of Berea. And then look what happens. We turn the world upside down through perseverance when our hearers don't cooperate too. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, verse 13, learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. So the mob heard about it 50 miles away. And they come down, takes them a couple of days to get there, and they start stirring up the crowd. Well, what does Paul do? Well, first of all, sometimes you have to remove yourself. <laughs> if you cause a riot, you know, maybe the best thing is to slip out the back door. Uh, and that's exactly what Paul does. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off. And then you'll, at the end of the chapter uh, of our reading, verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a, a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So you see, Paul removed, but where did they go, gentlemen? To Athens, the world center for philosophers, for thinkers. And we'll get to see what he did with these thinkers next week. It's an amazing story. Does Paul ever stop just because he gets beat up or ravaged by, savaged by some people? No, he just goes from one place. Where's my opportunity to share the gospel? And then look, they also remain. Once again, Paul leaves Berea, but Jesus doesn't leave Berea. He's, Jesus is still there working through Silas and Timothy. And Paul would rather go to Athens all by himself than to leave Berea. We're not giving up on Berea. Just because we had a few riots over there, people got stirred up, we're going to continue to minister to these people. And you know what? Some minds are going to be changed through Silas and Timothy. Because later on, Silas and Timothy come to Paul and tell him, the saints in Macedonia are doing well. Because Jesus is there, still working with the minds of men. Let's pray.
Father, uh, thank you for the gospel which addresses our minds, sanctifies our minds, sets our minds free to think again, to think clearly, to think thoughts after you, to put everything together, to see a holistic universe made by you, sustained by you, judged by you, redeemed by you. God, thank you for enlarging our minds and lifting them to the heavenlies so that we can truly think thoughts after you. What a great God you are. Enable us to go out into this broken and hurting world, sometimes an angry, riotous world, and enable us, Lord, to present the gospel reasonably and lovingly to all those who will hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you.